coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I, I heard a crack. I lost all feeling below my chin. So I went into what they called at the time like spinal shock. And if I looked at the video, my body doesn't, I don't drop and hold out my hand, I flop. It's like I've been shot or something like that. My body does not look like I'm in control of it. I said, I can't feel my arms and legs because I'm looking at them and I'm like, they're not mine. And the first thought I had was, okay, I'm going to be a quadriplegic. I really like computers. I, I think I'm going to get into computers. Now this sounds completely nuts, but in that moment, what you're trying to do is solve the problem. So in my mind, it's like, okay, my next problem is what am I going to do for a career? Off the field, I see my family. I go back to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, these things generally in one, one of three ways, you either become a quadriplegic, you, you die or you're going to walk out of here and you're going to walk out of here. Hi, this is Ben Darwin from Gainline Analytics. You can find us on gainline.biz, Twitter, LinkedIn, myself, and the company Gainline Analytics. This is my episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Ben Darwin, Director of Gainline Analytics, former Australia pro rugby player and coach. Ben had to retire from professional rugby prematurely due to a severe neck injury. Here's his story about what he's done since and why he went this way, examining team cohesion and teamwork indices that contribute to consistent winning and on-field success. Ben propped for the Brumbies and the Wallabies before embarking on analytics and forward coach positions with teams such as the Western Force, Melbourne Rebels and Suntory in Japan. His company, Gainline, Founded in 2013 is changing the game around data analytics, revealing that great teams are the product of the connections and linkages within. There's a wonderful dialogue around the structural layers that drive cohesion in teams, namely shared experiences, combinations, and the overarching system. This is definitely one to listen to for pro sport and business. As distinct from other operations and management consultancies in the industry, Gainline places a heavy focus on data analysis and quantitative research. We really appreciate this, as the solutions are backed by evidence and real-world experience, like our worlds in physio and sports medicine. And Darwin, welcome to the show. What's going on in your world? How are you? I'm um, good. It's it's uh, it's night time. It's reporting day in Australia, which means like all the team lists are coming out in rugby league and rugby union over the next couple of days. So um, doing a lot of reporting work, and uh, and I've um, yeah happy to be away from the house with the kids. <laughs> ben, before we get into gain line, and obviously we're really intrigued by you know, the cohesion piece and, and, and teaming and all those sort of principles of, of bringing people together. Obviously, you had a really successful career in professional rugby. Why did you transition into empirical evidence, analysis, quantum qualification? Where did that all come from? Where was the curiosity maybe as you were playing that this was something you wanted to dig into? It's, it's a bit of a progression. Like most guys who played for Australia, I wasn't born in Australia. I was born in the UK. And um, 
whilst I was playing, I was always sort of interested in this idea of what was this obsession that people had about uh, in the Northern Hemisphere about teams in the Southern Hemisphere? Why do they see them to be so good when the reality of it, from my own perspective, was we were just another bunch of guys messing around? So it's like this weird worship of particularly, you know, the Welsh talking about playing the All Blacks and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and I remember a quote by a guy called Peter Fitzsimons who said, you know, you turn up and you play against England and think, like, is this the very best that team they could put together? So I was always kind of interested in this idea of why do we do well in, this, in the Southern Hemisphere? Um, and that just existed while I was playing. And then when I got uh, when I got injured in the 03 World Cup, I started coaching, jumped straight into coaching, worked with a number of different teams. But as I would bounce around, you know, successfully and non-successfully, I'd go to one team and I'd coach and I'd win everything. Like I think I went two years in Japan uh, without losing a game. And then I'd go to another team, like an expansion franchise, and we wouldn't win anything. And I was like, okay, well, I'm doing the same stuff here but this is not working or it's working. And, um, and the data analysis that most people are doing was really around event data. And then in 2008, when the global financial crisis, I was in Japan and I thought I'd like to do data analytics because I like computers anyway. Um, and, and basically started to teach myself, taught myself to code games as opposed to coding computers. Um, but again, the, you know, and then I became the analyst of the Melbourne Rebels. And one of the questions that came up with the Rebels is, how long is it going to take us to win? And I'm still working on that answer. It's, still, it's now, you know, 13 years later, I'm still working on that answer. And um, I looked into a whole bunch of things at the time. And, and um, when I came back from Japan, I'd been coaching the team I'd, I'd coached went undefeated, but I still got fired at the end of the season. Something I'm like, okay, coaching is difficult because, you know, it's, it's, it's so dependent on so many parts. And then I actually started game line analytics with a completely different notion, which was just player availability data and mostly selling that to French clubs. So I've got this database of every, every player in the world in league and union. And I was just saying, okay, if you want to get a flanker, here's all the flankers of contract. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we started dealing with a company, which is now called stats. It was Prozone at the time. And I started to notice things about certain clubs and the way they were recruiting and finding the more they recruited, the worse they did. And then clubs who were bankrupting themselves and couldn't recruit anybody would improve. And then I would see, you know, like uh, I was thinking of this the other day, then I don't know if you remember the 1998 tour of, uh, of, of Australia, South Africa and New Zealand, what they called the tour from hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, Australia beat them by 80. And then the next game, New Zealand beat them by 50. And the next game, New Zealand beat them by 30. And the next game, South Africa beat them by 18. And I'm like, wow, they really improved over that tour. But they, they had no one else to choose. They had that tour. They had to keep the same guys. And I bumped into that scenario a lot of times where people could not change the players they had and they would improve, even if they were losing. It didn't seem to matter if they were winning or losing. They just got better. So I started to look at this as a scenario and it's like, wow, okay, you know, what sort of research could we look into? We started looking at things like portability of talent. And then, then this kind of like just stream of data and information. We had a guy called Pat Ferguson, who's a, he's, he's a university professor. He's much smarter than I. And he just helped us found all this research we could on contractual stability, portability of talent, 
impact of system change. And we basically came up with this idea called cohesion analytics. And the, the nature of it is fundamentally to just try to get to the heart of performance and try to put to one side what we don't know or what we can't prove. And so, okay, how accurate can we get just on functioning around what we do, what we can actually prove and how can we help teams or systems improve as, as clients? That's brilliant. And we'll dive into cohesion analytics soon, but just to get yeah, a, a frame on it, in professional sports, we see it in the US market in major sports over there, a lot of statistics, a lot of data analysis that comes through on the broadcasting. It seems to be a, a mainstay and a keystone in terms of teams understanding their cohesion, especially, and how they're doing in terms of performance. How much is it a part of the professional game now? How important is analytics within rugby union, within premiership football, et cetera? You know, I really differentiate between the notion of what I would call event data and, and then our, our realms of data, which is more around almost governance. Yeah. But, you know, there is so much noise in data analytics and stuff that doesn't mean anything yeah. and stuff that doesn't contribute. I think the best, the best way around a lot of event data is it really helps you to understand what the team is trying to do. But once you start to use it as a KPI of success, it's really fraught with danger. You know, I remember when we started the Rebels and, we, and, and everyone is like, okay, what are the Crusaders doing? And then you look to the Crusaders like, their line-out is terrible. They're the you know, second or third worst line-out in the comp. So is that important? Well, to the Bulls it was because that's how they played. You know, because their game was all about kick chase. The, the line-out was everything. So, you know, if, if you set yourselves KPIs of what everyone else is doing, one you don't progress the game, you don't make any progress, you don't, you don't come up with anything new, you're just copying and by the time you get there, they'll have moved on anyway. But most of the time, the, the data they're doing is an output and that's an output of a system. What I'm trying to understand is the system that produces that output. And so if you copy what the Crusaders do, if you copy their technique, if you copy all Leinster, that's not going to work because that, that is the end of a chain of decisions that have taken place over 15 or 20 years and that's where they've gotten to and that's why they can be that efficient. Whereas if you just say, well, we need to do the process they're doing, there's so much complexity inside of the process of how they got there. It's an evolution. It's like, it's like looking at the Beatles at the end of their career and saying, you know, we need to just copy, copy that last album they did. That's a progression, right? And so everyone you see is a progression of that. And so the, the data analytics at that stage really is just the end of that process. When you're trying to help people understand in sport or business, the importance of connection, and we're really getting a sense to that where we're working at the moment, you talk a lot about connection and, and linkages and kind of how that really is probably what separates those organizations that are doing well. What do you look for? How do you nurture and create that? So I'm coming at it from an entirely different view and I'm not, I'm not somebody that is going to say something else is wrong, all I'm going to function by what I can prove. So what I'm looking for is I'm looking at the statistical evidence of the way in which the club is constructed and there is statistics around that. So, for example, if I'm looking at a centre pairing in rugby, what I want to know, first of all, is what are the common attributes of all of the most successful centre pairings? Well, most of them have probably played at the same club before they played for their country. You look at Darcy O'Driscoll, Bunce Little, Little Horn, different guys, um, Nonu and Conrad Smith. Yeah. Let's look at how they, they all played first. I mean, Little and Horn met when they were 12. 
Okay, and then what happens to their individual performance once they leave? So Nonu, outside of the, the Hurricanes and the All Blacks, was awful. But he wasn't awful because he was an awful player, but he was accused of not caring. He was accused in Japan of being one of the worst imports they'd ever had. But we know that understanding among centres is probably the most important component. And in that position, that's the most important part of the field where understanding is required. And so, therefore, it is impacting our perception of that, of that player's ability. And so you have to look at their outputs entirely differently. So that's attribution bias. We overly attribute the performance of the individual, not to the situation. So now I can measure all of those parts. But we also know, for example, is that when a, when a coach comes into a club, they'll either change the system or they'll let things run as they were or they'll just, or sometimes they're not even competent enough to do that. Yeah. Of those three scenarios, the most damaging is the person that tries to come in and change the system. And interestingly, we found the more experience coaches have, the more likely they are to underperform in their first year because they change so much. And so if you're switching from man-on-man -man defense to zone defense, there's going to be chaos in that yeah. first period of time. So actually, the person who's incompetent statistically does better in that first year. Oh. Right. Oh. So, so then it's like, okay, how does that reflect? How do we judge coaching in that scenario? Um, and then, so, so we look at we look at teams in three different ways. We look at interpersonal understanding. We look at um, uh, we look at positional understanding, and we look at system understanding. So, positional understanding is when I, I don't know if you remember the Chicago game, uh, uh, All Blacks. Um, yeah. You know, so, so that was one of the worst teams the All Blacks have put on the field in 20 years against a top 10 country. No offense to Ireland, but when Ireland... We're taking the, the win. Taking the win. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but the, <laughs> the games where Ireland beat them after that were much more impressive, right? So you had two centres, for example, had probably, I think, played one game together in that game. And you had Kano at five. He'd never played five, maybe off the bench a couple of times. But that meant, okay, their scrum is done, their line-out attack is done, their line-out defence is done, their mall defence is done. And so there was just holes everywhere. And, what, you know, um, Ireland just went through them in the first half. So, so that's what we're looking What We're looking at that data around positional understanding. And then, for example, you know, five to uh, six to five is much more dramatic than, say, six to seven or six to eight. And one of the other components we look at is what we call the antimatter. The antimatter is I know how to do something, but what do I know before that that's going to work against me doing that? Mm. So if I'm a winger who shoots up defensively every single time they pass the ball beyond 10 and I change clubs to a club that doesn't do that, under duress, I'm going to go back to that process. Right? If you take a kid and you teach that kid on the first day, hold, he doesn't know anything else to do, so he'll hold. You bring somebody else to your club that's functioned in a different system with different habits, and under duress, they'll revert back yeah. to the old style, the old way. So where I'm really interested in you know, psychology, for example, is what happens to somebody under stress? How hard is it for them to recall information? Can they take information in? You know, We find with new staff, we're trying to teach them new things, and we're like, no, no offense to anyone that's worked for us, but in the first week, you're like, I can't believe this person is this dumb. And they're not dumb. They're just dealing with the new information, right? Lots of information. And so when players come on and play terribly, 
as a lot of guys, you know, if you, if you came in to play for Ireland, for outside of Ireland over the last 20 years, a lot of guys, you know, really struggled with it. That's not their fault. That's the situation. And maybe they needed more time. But the problem is the public and the coaches judge them, that they judge that guy the same as they judge the guy coming from Leinster, who's already played with 13 of his teammates when he's making his debut. He's not making a debut at all. He's like on his 300th game, you know. It's an entirely different scenario. So that's the stuff we're looking at that contributes towards the performance component. So that builds in nicely to cohesion because we're thinking about England, even versus Ireland, where a lot of the players do generally come from Leinster and Munster predominantly. So they're used to having cohesion. And a lot of the time they would have played together. So we generally keep the top performers with us for a long period. Like Pierre Amani recently is a perfect example. He's been around Ireland for a long time. So his style of play, his interpersonal understanding is probably very high with the players around him. And then England often have an array of clubs that they choose their players from, and it can change from year to year. How do coaches get the most out of keeping a stable system and improving cohesion when they're looking at foreign players across the league? So I think the most important part to start off with is what am I looking at when I'm looking at a player? So I'm looking at a guy play for Leinster. It's like that guy should be making seven line breaks a game because he's part of the system. If I'm looking at a guy at Connaught, you know, he's going to be theoretically underperforming comparatively. Um, and so that, that's the first part. The second part is what position is he playing in? Different positions will be affected in different ways by, so, so prop is a power position. It's important, obviously, to have connection with the hooker, but it's not like 12. It's not like 10. So there are certain positions, management positions, if you will, that require much more time in order to, 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 uh, to function appropriately. I think that, that when we're talking about a coach, a coach is on the end of this process. If you're coaching Wales when you're Graham Henry, you know, before they did the regionalisation of Welsh rugby, it's an entirely different scenario, which is why, you know, you know, other than other circumstances, he didn't win games at the same rate that Gatlin does. But he went back to New Zealand, coached the All Blacks Wins of World Cup, so he's not a Muppet. When we add cohesion to a scenario and, and compare coaches to each other, we, we see very, very small margins between them, very small margins between them. Now, um, so, so a lot of this will be governance and structure, but then inside of the scenario you have, you know, as a, as a coach on the week-to-week, it's like, okay, well, I need to be thinking... Is this, you know, the team I've got now, we need to be at a certain level of cohesion to win a World Cup. So if you're not top two, top three, no one's ever won a World Cup under that number for, for, for our markers. So I need to be able to get there and it's going to take me a period of time. If I'm coaching England, I have a lot of ground to make up. Okay. If you're coaching Ireland and New Zealand, it's pretty, pretty much there most of the time. That's why Ireland do so well between World Cups, not at the World Cup, because everyone else like France and England, catch them at World Cups. So, so England and France do this, right, and at World Cups they'll peak. You look at England 07, we call it back-ending. You know, in 07 they lose to South Africa in the, in the rounds and then they almost beat them in the final. They were improving as the tournament goes. You look at, you know, France in 11, they lost to Tonga or Samoa and then they almost beat the All Blacks in the final, right? So they, they will see this dramatic improvement over time. So it's also important to understand the situation of what you have and then, you know, how do you function with reserves? How do I bring guys in? How do I bring guys out? Um, and, and, and be thinking constantly about, about getting, how do I peak at the appropriate time? What's important? What do I want to win? I mean, we'll work with clubs 
we worked with a club that was trying not to get relegated and we had 10 games to make them good enough to win three of their last, two of their last three. So that's a very different scenario to how would we get, how would you get USA to win a World Cup in 30 years' time? Like that's a, that's another question that would require a lot of time. How do we go about doing that? So each of these on a different timeline. But the main thing I reckon is, is managing the expectations of the board is half the job for these guys. You know, like, you know, you, if you're going to take on England, you better convince them it's going to be really, really hard. We're going to look absolutely terrible and everyone's going to, everyone's going to accuse us of underperforming and saying, how could we ever lose games when we have so much resources because they don't understand the system? So that's a much harder job. Whereas you take Scotland, that's not bad. You know, it's pretty, pretty well built. It makes a lot of sense because we often get very disappointed at World Cups after coming. We normally go in first or second in the world the last few mm. tournaments and we're, we're kind of, our expectations are so high as a country. So, so Irish, Irish rugby fans in the 1990s would be laughing at that, right? Because, you know, like, like but, but Irish rugby in the 90s wasn't built on the provinces, was it? It was built on the clubs. Yeah. So that's why there was so much more schizophrenic back then and the Welsh were the same. So you look at the 90s, the Irish and the Welsh and the Scottish, for that matter, how they did in the Six Nations, it was an annihilation. It was basically, it basically mirrored the under-20s and the women's mm. where there isn't cohesion. So the big countries in that scenario just smash everybody. This is, this is Ireland's advantage, right? This is what, this is what makes them competitive and what makes the, the Welsh more competitive. It's what made Australia competitive for, for 30 years. And so as, as awful as it might be, maybe, maybe winning two out of four Six Nations, beating New Zealand every couple of years and, and, and losing semifinals of the World Cup is as good as it can get right now. There's other tweaks they can make, but that's still pretty good. It's just, just the cycles it runs in makes it harder for you. Ben, we, we love the concept around the teamwork index. Obviously, your piece of work, shared experiences, team system, player combinations. How does that infrastructure, that kind of multi-layered piece of work, work with, with an environment that is, is really changing? What does it do if you maybe try to initiate that with an American football team where there's mass turnover of, of players year to year, injury, free agency, trades, or even, you know, in, in Premier League football, as an example, and maybe there's change of manager with a team that's underperforming. Again, massive transition players in or out. Manchester United coming, coming to the head there. So teamwork index, what, what does that do? What's it about? How can it work for those sort of organizations? So, so there's many different ways to skin the cap. Right, and if we just stick with rugby for a second, if that's okay. Yeah. If you're Toulon in 2007, they've decided they're going to win it and they want to win the whole thing. But they had to be together for a certain amount of time to be effective. You know, um, talking to George Gregan, they had games where they had five captains from the Southern Hemisphere, guys like Matfield, and they were still losing to second division teams. Right. So the numbers at that stage were terrible. But they would, if they could hold those groups together. You know, two or three years in, they could win. They could win tournaments, and but the problem is that's not sustainable because they're all going to go, and then you've got to rebuild again, and then you start off at zero. But then it's in the context of the top fourteen, which basically only has two to three cohesive clubs in it anyway. Okay, whereas the AFL, for example, all and and interestingly, uh, Gaelic football and hurling are really highly cohesive competitions. Those competitions are much harder to be successful for expansion teams. And Ben, to cut across. 
because there's not players coming in and out. The Limerick team, it's the same players for the last five years, as opposed to Galway, who just played, and it's a new sort of cycle. Is that what you're alluding to there? Yeah, so, so the, more, the more stable the league is and the less transfers you have between the clubs, the harder it is to win, the longer it takes because the top teams have the most cohesion. Okay? So if you're looking at the NFL, the NFL is not a high-cohesion league comparative to the AFL, right? But there is areas on the field that we've measured, we know the cohesion is more important, okay, than other parts of the field. So if you have it in certain areas and, you, and you, we know you can't win, or the, well, the numbers are so catastrophic, your ability to be effective on the field is almost negligible. But if you're in a league that, where people are coming and going all the time, you don't need large amounts of cohesion to win it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Now, what's interesting is, Let's look at coaching. The more unstable the league is, the more unstable the jobs are. So, you know, the the uh, the English Championship, so it's second division, I forget the names, it keeps changing every week, it feels like. So the second division, the second tier of English football, the average, the average manager, I think, was lasting nine months. And then we learned about Brazilian football where it's like three months. Now, the AFL, it's five and a half years. That's the average tenure of the coaches, right? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the more stable the league, the better people can judge the performance of the coach. Whereas if you're chopping and changing, then people just get fired left, right, and center. And then you get guys like a Sam Allardyce who just do things in a really simple manner and simplify things actually really effective because they have to sort of come in and undo all the system change that's taken place that somebody else has had. So, and that's actually where you see the most bounce performance-wise is when you've had a team who's actually very stable, but they've been underperforming because somebody's taken them deviated them in a different way. Now, if I just jump to Manchester United for a second, they are, they've gone from a 70% TWI under Ferguson to 20% now. They've dropped mm-hmm. dramatically, but it happens over a long period of time. Something goes wrong, you make a change, okay, therefore that change creates more instability, which creates more losses, which creates, creates more instability, and it just, you know, then it tumbles down. And the problem with cohesion is it goes up slowly, but it can drop off 40% in a day. If you give it a good crack, you can do you can do 30 years of damage to a club in two or three days if you really want to put in the effort. Um, but, but I'll tell you who else has really come off hard is Barcelona. Last two or three years, they've been trying to solve the problem to reju- rejuvenate and recreate the success they had, but they've been doing it the wrong way. And that just creates more chaos. And, and it becomes this cycle and you end up just blaming the individuals in that situation. So how can you, we're interested in change agency, right? We're, we're physios, we're interested in behavioral science and how people can a, a, adapt. What's the, how could they do it better? What, what should Barcelona have done differently? What should Manchester United have done differently? Is it just interrupt? all those changes was it just too much change and like how long would it take man united to get back what do they need to do so you it'd be seven years something like that to i think put it back together again to, to what it was you know it took ferguson a long time to build it up to what it was yeah he didn't win straight away in fact he almost fired pretty early in the piece and it, and it takes time there's a law of diminishing returns with cohesion which means you can get some good early gains if you're in complete chaos um but it's, it, it, it's realistically 
you know, there's a, there's a great example of this. There's a couple of Richmond in the AFL. There's a great video about Richmond. Um, you can go and watch online. And, uh, and it was something like the rise and fall of Richmond. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember the link for it. But it was this, it was this club that was highly successful in the 70s. And they had a bad year, one bad year, where their senior players were injured. So they won a grand final the year before, and, and then they had a number of injuries to their senior players, and they missed the finals by a kick. And that was the pivot point for the organisation, 1983. So because of that, even though they won the year before, the board said to the coach, you're not winning, you're gone. They fired him. They replaced him with the captain, which always goes well, of course, making the captain the coach of the team. The next year, they bounced back because those senior players were still there, made the grand final, lost that grand final, and then some of the players were frustrated. They didn't feel like they're being heard. They left. The club's response to that was, if you're going to leave, we're going to buy three, three players from the other team. We're going to bring in a player on more money. The players under them got frustrated. Next year, they came last. They sacked the coach. They didn't. And, and then the next, let's say the next 11 years, they had seven different coaches. Wow. They just bounced along the bottom, right? It's change, 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 change. And the TWI went down and down and down and down and down. And they didn't recover from that until 2015, right? They didn't, they didn't fully recover to become a successful club. But two years prior to that, a new CEO had come in and said, we are going to win three titles by 2020, which they did. And, you know, but in, in the meantime, they still lost games by large margins, but they did not panic. They said, this is the path we're on. And they kept to that path. So on the way up, they, they, they held the line against massive amounts of pressure. And the bigger the club, the more the fans, the more the, the noise, you know. So that's the challenge for clubs like Barcelona and Man U when it's all going wrong. And because the public doesn't have context, because the board members don't have context, they just keep saying, we need to do this. And they're all watching the other team saying, we need to go get that player from that club and bring him in. He'll be the answer to the problems. And the problem is he's doing well in that club because he's playing at Leinster or he's playing, you know, at this AFL club. So how he performs there has nothing to do with how he's going to perform here. So it's, it's that ability to grow and, and, uh, and build cohesion over time requires patience and a vision and holding the line under that really, really difficult scenario. And then when things go wrong, say, you know, remind yourselves that the other way doesn't work. I mean, we sit down with a lot of clubs and say, here's your last 30 years. You've been basically doing the same thing over and over and over again, and all it's been is change. New coach, new players, new management, new board, again and again and again. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's actually not changing that increases understanding, which completely doesn't make sense, right? But actually not doing something means you build understanding and by building understanding you perform better and then you just keep you have to keep having to grow that but everyone wants to look like they're doing something to fix the problem whereas that actually may be the problem so how that far does that does that area of stability go so we're looking at players changing squads changing the support staff maybe medical staff maybe coaching even board admin hr whatever it is within an organization if that's stable does that affect on-field performances and results? I would definitely say so. I mean, I mean, first, first things first, the, the ability of medical staff to keep people on the field and the impact of that is just absolutely enormous. You know, if it, injury, you know, selection stupidity 
is exactly the same as injuries, mm. right? And so injuries, if they take players off the field, you will lose games because the, the level of understanding between the players will drop because you have new players coming in. So the ability to keep players on the field. Interestingly, there is a really strong link. There's a guy called Barker who did some work on, uh, on stress and soft tissue injury. And, and I was interested, I wonder if, if we could prove that, you know, uh, upheaval in a club causes more stress. Therefore, do clubs with more upheaval have more injuries? Mm. Right? I really, because a lot of people talk about the really stable clubs really have low injury rates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I, I can't prove it. I just like to, I'd like to be able to prove it. <laughs> um, but, but also, too, is that, you know, how many times have we seen a new strength and conditioning person come in, come in with a new style of doing something, and then on Monday you get seven hamstrings? You know, like, like we're going to do this. You know, it's been plyometrics. You could have come up with 20 different things where it's like, you know, the really smart guys, um, uh, you know, I got a mate of mine, Charlie Higgins, the, the Leinster, been around a long time and it's like he knows what works, but he also knows what makes, like, no difference. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that, that is as important, if not more important, about where you put your resources. But it's not, it's not you know, a lot of time the boards will panic and they'll go and they'll say, we got to go to the Crusaders. we got to find out everything they have. We need to get exactly that. And then they'll go down there like, it's pretty much the same as we've got, you know. Or, you know, one club will have some very expensive equipment. They go and buy that and then it becomes, you know, I'm not going to say cry chambers, but it ends up becoming the freezer for the beers, right, as opposed to the actual <laughs> facility. So and I'm not saying that's, I don't know, I don't know any of the signs of that, but you can get obsessed sometimes by the answer being in a thing or a piece of machinery. Yeah. Whereas good knowledge of, of medical and strength and conditioning and understanding what makes a difference and, you know, um, uh, nutrition, it's what not to introduce oftentimes that can make people the most effective. Ben, appreciate you talking about the importance of what, what we do. That's what we do. Um, <laughs> your injury. I want to ask you something a little bit about a LinkedIn post later, but just about your injury I know we're going back a while, but rem I, I remember it when we were reading a bit more about it there, Kiran. I, what was that like for you? Obviously, you then transition into your data analysis and coaching capacities, and now look where we are. Gain line, we're talking cohesion. But, mm. but just talk us back to that because there's, pe there's people listening to this, there's players listening to this, recently retired because of injury, a uh, Leinster player in particular coming to mind there. So... Talk us through what it was like and kind of what did you do to overcome it and then move forward with the positive step to the next thing? So I'd, I'd, had, a, I'd had a knee injury leading up to the World Cup, so we're trying to get me back in and, um, and you know, with, with my permission, of course, it was about trying to say, okay, I want to get back in to, to get the World Cup, and I probably didn't have the best power on the inside leg, which is really important, the scrummaging, but I made a mistake in the game. Um, a new guy, Dave Hewitt, I was scrummaging against him. I won't get into the technicalities of scrummaging because that's awesome but boring. But, but um, Dave Hewitt came off and a guy called Case Muse came on. He came in and, and he had a very aggressive scrummage. I just got caught between the hooker and the prop. And I, I heard a crack and my, I lost all feeling below my chin. So I went into what, what they called at the time like spinal shock. Mm -hmm. And if I looked at the video, my body doesn't, I don't drop and hold out my hand, I flop. It's like I've been shot or something like that. My body does not look like I'm in control of it. But at this point, I'm completely in shock. And the physio comes on and he says, 
I said, I can't feel my arms and legs because I'm looking at them and I'm like, they're not mine. And the first thought I had was, okay, I'm going to be a quadriplegic. I really like computers. I think I'm going to get into computers, right? Now, this sounds completely nuts, but in that moment, what you're trying to do is solve the problem. When you're playing, you're just trying to solve the problem. So in my mind, it's like, okay, my next problem is what am I going to do for a career? So off the field, I see my family. Um, I go back to the, to the doctor and the doctor's doctor I meet at, uh, at Royal North Shore says, oh, um, one, these things generally in one, one of three ways, you either become a quadriplegic, uh, you, you die or you're going to walk out of here and you're going to walk out of here. Because I was thinking about the guy who died playing for Ivory Coast, I don't know if you remember the 95 World Cup, in a, died in a scrum, yeah. yeah. Um, so when I then saw the next day some of the players, that's when, like, the waterworks started. So at the time I was fine, but it just got, it just got hard to see those guys. And then I attended the final. Uh, I got out of hospital on Thursday or the Friday at a neck brace. Uh, I, I watched the final with enough probably endone to kill a horse at that point. You know, I was not really quite there. And then I sort of had to then transition. But where I was really lucky was I wasn't like most other players. I, I never got to have the experience of being told I wasn't wanted. Because I, I was working my way up to the Wallabies. I never got dropped. But last time I was dropped, it was like, like I was 16. So what then happens is everyone then nicely tells you how good you would have been and you can, you can never prove them wrong by failing, right? So I did not have this experience of like being told by the rubbies, it's time for you to leave now. You're not wanted anymore. So that was, that was great for my ego and great, great in terms of, uh, you know, my body has not had to deal with the rigors, you know, of playing prop for 20 years professionally. But the grief of, of the guilt of not being a quadriplegic and meeting quadriplegics was really hard to deal with. Meeting those guys like, man, I should be you. I should be in this position. And then secondly, just trying to deal with the level of change that I underwent, you know, the change causing the stress. You know, I, I ended up getting divorced. I moved, moved to, over to Perth to be, with, to be the Western Forces as a coach. That didn't work out. I went back home. I just had about two or three years, and I, I liken it to, um, to skiing, right? I don't know if you guys ski very well or ski at all. It's not when you ski, ski, but not yeah. very well. Yeah, okay. So when you're going down a mountain, right, you'll lose a ski. Right. And if you lose the ski and you're like, okay, that's gone. But somehow you're on one ski, right? And if you just remain pointing down the hill, you can probably keep going. But the problem is at some point you're going to have to crash, get up and walk back up the mountain. So when my accident happened, I was actually fine. I was actually fine for a couple of years. And then two to three years later, I crashed. And I just then had to deal with it all. And, and so I didn't, I didn't. And that, that tends to come not you know, three months after when your mates are calling you up every day, it's three to four years later when you're sitting in a car by yourself and no one's talking to you because you're not of any use, right? You're not, you're not, you're not in any teams, you're not part of that. And, and that's probably that most, most people just get around players in the first year. That's not when they need to get around. They need to get around them in the second and third year because then all the attention's gone and everyone's kind of moved on and then they have to then move on themselves. They have to kind of learn to get back to, to, to the semblance of their normal lives. Thanks a million for sharing that. That was, that was powerful stuff. Um, and I think 
we can both see anyway and everybody listening has probably seen the gain line analytics and what you're doing now is really sparking energy for you we can see it coming through in your responses with the questions yeah it annoys people I, I, I go off on 25 minute answers for two minute questions so I apologize for that <laughs> no we're getting loads from it so just with gain line analytics tell us what's on the horizon where are you looking to go TWI is a fundamentally it's a it's a philosophical viewpoint and it basically says if you grow from within, you'll be much more sustainable in the long term as, as clubs, right? Whereas if you continuously buy, it brings with it chaos and, and lack of understanding about what's going to take place next. So that we can apply that across, we've applied that across every sport and everything from military to, to corporates. But so, so as we kind of um, span that out, we then will go into a particular industry. So rugby union, rugby league right now is where we have lots of data. And we're really kind of bearing down on that. And so on a per game basis, for example, rugby league, we're now 2,000 pieces of data per game on the cohesion of the team. And now we're like, okay, where else can we take that? And the more you look at it, the more you can understand it, the more you can run a comparative. And one thing I've, I've probably mentioned this before or, um, is we found, that, we found that teams were dramatically underperforming when they changed their jerseys. Have you guys heard of this study we did? So, so we looked at the NRL and rugby union because we just kept finding that there was like these one-off games where like, man, New Zealand really sucked against Scotland when they wore a white jersey or they sucked in the quarterfinal against France, you know. Great. So we just found this little pattern. Newcastle Knights, for example, wear this orange jersey every year uh, to, to celebrate the local miners. And I think they've won one out of six wearing this jersey. So, so I asked... Um, a player for the Knights, and I asked a guy called Sterling Mortlock. Sterling's on our advisory board, yeah. and and particularly so guys who guys who held the ball a lot. And I said, "What happens when you change the jersey?" And they said, "You turn to pass to your teammate and you flinch, because we only noticed the attack was dropping off when they changed jersey, not defence. Hmm. When they're defending, they're looking at them. When you're trying to attack, you try to connect with your teammates. And they said, "Oh, hang on, that's not the right guy in the right jersey, right?" So we found that they would. We found the. We looked at the data on offloads. And we found their offload accuracy was dropping back really dramatically. They're just passing to ghosts. So like, oh, shit, who do I pass it to? Um, and you go and look at that game in France, uh, New Zealand in 07. Like there was, yes, there's a lot of penalties, but that's a component of it. And so we found that the attack of teams who changed their jersey the first time to a different colour dropped off by 40%. Wow. So we're like, okay, that's really interesting. You know, But you can only do that if you can... If, if you can compare games against one another and have other information to use. Because if, if you just compare, okay, well, form, for example, it's not necessarily that reflective. So the more information you have, it's like a Pythagorean theorem, triangle, sorry. If you, if you get two corners of the triangle, you can start to figure out the third. And that third might be coaches or it might be jerseys or it might be system. So as, as we go, we've, we've taken it further and further. So the next two sports for us is is NFL and football, and we just apply the same mechanics to it, and and then and we'll find other stuff uh, that will be different. So rugby league defense works different to rugby union defense. NFL is different again because you've got two teams, attack and you know attack offense and obviously special teams. So there'll be components of that. So we then can specialize and we'll learn as much as we can about that sport, and then use that data to further get understanding, and then hopefully start to then work with clients to to take that further and further to get a more and more accurate model. And my last question, then we'll kick it over to Kiran. That, that's super fascinating. 
You had a very interesting post on LinkedIn a couple of minutes ago, a couple of months ago, sorry. First principles in business and sport. We haven't talked a lot about business, but of course this works in business. You said, uh, which here is true? Does leadership training improve leaders or does having values stated improve performance? That, I found that really interesting. And just would you talk us through what, what you think around that, because I think that's very interesting for some of our listeners. So, so this is a hard topic because yeah. there's a lot of people in this industry with a lot of a lot to gain, a lot to lose, and and have different opinions, right? Yeah. I just come at it from the perspective of, okay, if you're going to put forward this notion of I can make your team better, prove it. Tell mm-hmm. me how you can do it. Tell me how you've done it before. And just because you've done it before doesn't mean you can do it again. Well, this mm-hmm. team is built to do that, right? So then, then show me the information that you have that shows that this collectively can make an impact. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying leadership training doesn't work because, of course, it works. It's going to have an impact. But how much of an impact? Because I think, you know, I heard a, heard a quote once, um, and I'm going to forget his name. He's, a, he's an Irish guy who's very heavy in the U.S. And he's very good on um, uh, uh, performance if you speak to a strength and conditioning coach and you speak to a, and, and they'll say, we can make 27% difference. You speak to somebody who's like the nutrition, they'll look at a player and say, geez, look how healthy he is. And if you, you know, you talk to the physio, it's like, wow, his arms are really functioning well. If you added up all those percentages that everyone said they could make, right, then, then, then it'll be 375%, okay? But then you get like the Fijians pushing, pushing, you know, wheels up hills yeah. right against great britain who would have all the everything they would need from a from a support perspective and the and the fijians pants them right mm. in a final so i'm not saying that that so what actually is making the difference what can we prove that's making a difference and um it's it's yeah i want to i want to be so cautious because i don't want to say nothing works but what I mean, I really want to find out is right. What can we actually prove works in those in those areas? And if so, then then that's fantastic. If we can prove it, then we can then we can use it going forward. But um, you know, I, I came up with this idea, which was there are times when you know, if a club becomes stable enough, they'll start to look in other places, and they'll start to say, okay, well, we now want to bring on, let's say, uh, uh, an LP specialist. Okay, so they bring that NLP specialist and he comes in and he says, I'm and this is not casting aspersions on the industry. I can make your team win. All I need you to do is just give me a year with them. And so the owner goes, "Okay." so the owner says, we're going to bring in this guy and he's going to be amazing. And he comes in and he does it and it works. Right. But because he asked to do that, it also happened to be the first time in the club's history. They hadn't turned over the entire list because the owner said, this guy's going to come in and fix the problem, mm. right? So maybe the cohesion that was gained through not making changes was actually the thing that actually made the difference. So we came up with this idea was if we could sell to clubs that we just ask all of the players to hold a balloon above their head for an hour a day and then someone walks up and kicks them in the nuts, right? So that's the process. <laughs> and if we say, right, we're going to do that, we can, t- we can explain to you that this is going to work for the club. And, you know, and this is not me taking the piss out of anyone. It's just we, could, we believe we could theoretically prove that could work. 
because of the improvement you'd get in the club by the stability that it brought in explaining to the club that you could do it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so what we then need to do is to say, right, does it work when this club, if you added this to a club in complete chaos that's down the bottom of the ladder, would it improve them? Mm. Or does it do exactly the same for the team that's at the top that has time to do it? You know, as I always say, you never, you never, uh, you never put flowers in a vase when you've moved house, right? But just because the flowers in the vase are there doesn't mean that's why you're doing well. It's just a signal you've you've reached a point where you're at a point to do that. And so most of the teams who take a lot of that stuff on are doing it because they're at that point in their uh, iteration to, to to use that type of thing. So. That's probably the most controversial thing. So what I asked for from anybody was any scientific studies that they could tell me that anything, um, that they could prove that anything actually worked. And uh, no one came back with anything, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But, but what, you know, what study, it's, it's very, very hard to, to be able to produce any studies on this, but what studies can actually prove that this stuff uh, can make, make teams better? Don't hold a balloon if you've anyone nearby as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Down the balloon. Uh, ben, thanks a million for everything so far. We've one last question to ask you, and it's one that we ask everyone who comes on the show is, what does high performance mean to you? High performance means to me, you know, I look at it quite differently. We talk about this notion of skill times cohesion equals capacity. And so um, take the skill of your athletes, take the understanding between them, and, and your job is to get the very best out of what you can. And so high performance for me is reaching that potential. The outcome of that might actually be losing to the All Blacks by 50. But to me, that's, that's high performance. You're getting the best out of what you have given the capacity you have. Whereas sometimes the All Blacks will win by 20, but they're actually underperforming comparative to what they have. So for me, high performance is getting the best out of what you have with the resources you have available. Ben, ben Darwin, um, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks very much for opening up. Um, in particular, sharing that story around your injury. All the best with Gainline Analytics. Uh, yeah, some amazing, exciting stuff there. It really piqued our curiosity for sure. And I'm sure everyone listening today will get a lot from that. Look after yourself. Thanks very much for your time today. We really enjoyed it, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Cheers, Ben. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.